Good morning. I'm uh, Pastor Gabriel, one of the uh, pastors here, um, and uh, it is yeah, it's a it's a joy to be able to to worship with you guys. And um, I'm gonna be honest with you guys. Uh, I uh, I am a coffee addict. Um, that's a weird way to start the the morning, but uh, you know, I, I'm gonna be honest. I, I'm a bit of a coffee snob, uh, but it wasn't always like this. Uh, early on, I, I think my parents you know let me try coffee, and I, I found it to be very bitter. Uh, until they added condensed milk and I was like, well, that's delicious. Um, and, uh, I think it was probably seminary, uh, where coffee became a, a, a real thing to me, uh, because I had to stay awake in my classes. Um, and there was a Starbucks nearby. And so I was like, you know, I'm, I'm going there, um, because I am, I'm dying. And so, I found something called a caramel macchiato. Um, and if you never tried that, that's essentially coffee flavored caramel. Um, and I drank it and I was like, this is amazing. And, uh, it became my go-to drink. I, 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 uh, was very hooked and I knew it was a problem when I became a gold member and I was like, what's a gold member? And, uh, a gold card arrived in the mail. I was like, oh no, I have a problem. Uh, and it was all going well until one day across the street from our church, uh, opened up a shop, uh, called Andy town. Something incredible happened. Uh, I went in there and and maybe it was the Lord's leading, but, uh, it's like, can I have a caramel macchiato? They're like, oh, we don't know what that is. Oh, okay. Sorry. Uh, can I have, what, what's that thing? Cappuccino. Okay. And I drank it. And for the first time ever, it was like, my eyes were open and I was like, oh, that's what coffee's supposed to taste like. There's actual flavor in coffee. Uh, and, and it was like, I was seeing for the first time it from that day on, I never touched my gold card again. I uninstalled my, my Starbucks app on my phone. It was as if Starbucks never existed. I've never gone back since. And now I look down on all who drink Star Starbucks. So if that's you, I'm sorry if I offended you. Uh, but I share that because in today's passage, similarly, Paul is talking about the old covenant and the new covenant, the law and the gospel of Jesus. And, and in a similar way, he's making clear that the old, while good, is nothing compared to the new that comes with Christ. In fact, the new is so good that the old is forgettable and its glory is non, not even perceivable. Its glory is so much less in comparison. And he does this by giving a commentary on Exodus 34, where, which we'll go back to uh, today in order to understand this passage, where he brings us through the, mo the, the, the moment that Moses comes down from the mountain with his face glowing with the glory of God. And, and in uh, reading this passage, it's going to help us understand what Paul is talking about here in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, and, and we want to understand how this new covenant of the gospel of Jesus empowers us to do the ministry of the Spirit. Uh, in three ways, uh, we want to see how this new ministry of the new covenant uh, how it unveils our hearts, uh, and then how it frees us, and then also how it transforms us from the inside out. And so we need a little context here. Uh, and in order to do so, uh, we'll turn to Exodus chapter 34. And, and uh, at this moment is, is after the uh, moment at Mount Sinai, uh, after the, the people of Israel have been led out of Exodus, and God has given Moses the Ten Commandments. He's given them the law. Um, and, and meanwhile, as Moses is coming down the mountain from talking to Jesus, he finds Israel bowing to a golden calf, uh, committing all sorts of sins against this God who has just saved them out of slavery. And 
Uh, as you can imagine, Moses gets very angry. He breaks the tablets, he grinds up the cow, and he has them drink it, which uh, is, is pretty brutal, uh, but very fitting of the sin. Um, then he goes back up. He goes back up to the mountain. He talks to God, who is ready to destroy them, wipe them out, and start anew, start afresh with just Moses. Uh, but Moses intercedes on their behalf. And he asks for their forgiveness, for, for mercy upon these people, and God relents. And we see the, the covenant between God and Israel being renewed. And then he comes back down to talk to the people again. And what po Moses doesn't realize at this moment is something is different. And we see this in, in chapter uh, 34 of Exodus, verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. And so he, he's coming down and it's literally, physically reflecting the glory of God. His face is shining. Uh, for, for Twilight fans, Edward's face, right? He comes down, his face is aglow. There's something wrong. Like, why? What's going on? Uh, I can't even think of anything like for us that, that would actually cause our face to glow. Sure, if you see something you love, you go to a concert with your favorite uh, a musician, you might come out glowing. You know, that's, a, that's a, 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 a phrase that people use, but none of us are actually glowing. But this guy comes down and he's literally, literally glowing. And it's so bright that the people are terrified and they won't come close to him. And so what does he do? He veils his face as a result. Verse 33, and when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. And I'll be honest, as a kid, when I was reading this, I found this to be one of the most hilarious things. I just thinking of Moses walking around with a veil covering his face, but, but he, he does, he has to do this again and again. Every time he talks to God, it glows and he covers up. Uh, and you might think, and I was, I used to think this, that he did this to, to make sure that they weren't afraid. But what we're going to find here in today's passage is Paul tells us that Moses' veiling of his face had a far greater purpose than just making sure people weren't afraid of him. Uh, in, in chapter 3 of, of 2 Corinthians, Paul is actually using this moment to explain to us the covenants uh, of the old and the covenants of the new and, and how these two are different. And so he points back to this, where Paul is arguing for us that the, the shining of Moses' face and the veiling was actually a sign of things to come. Look at verse 7 and 8. Now of the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such a glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was bring, being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? All right, and so he's calling the Old Testament, the law, or the Torah, um, the covenant, uh, the, 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 the ministry of death. All right, that, that's the name he gives it. And he's saying it was carved in stones. That's the the the, the ten, com, uh, ten test ten commandments. Sorry, uh, and he says if it came with so much glory that it literally shone on his face, then he compares it with the new. He says, "Will not the ministry of spirit have even more glory? It, it's going to be even more amazing uh, than what came before." And, and then in verse nine through ten. He, he argues that this new glory is so great that it's going to render the old gloryless. And, and it's clear how Paul, who was a teacher of the law, feels about the old covenant. 
because he calls it the ministry of condemnation. He calls it the ministry of death. I mean, this is a guy who spent his entire life studying the law and now on the other side, having been given the New Testament, the ministry of the Spirit, he says that actually produced death and condemnation. And yet, he doesn't say that the law is bad. In fact, he said it was glorious. And it shows that he understood that the law bore the righteous character and goodness of God in it. It represented who God was, especially to a pagan people. But he says even that old covenant in its glory could not compare to the new covenant to come. It's so much better that the old looks like nothing. It is gloryless. And then in verse 11, he, he finishes it by, by saying the, the worst part about this, this old covenant was the fact that it's temporary in nature. It ends. It comes to an end. It's not permanent. And, so, and then he points to what is to come, the new covenant. He says that is much better because it will not end. It is eternal. And since we have it, this new covenant, which far exceeds the old in every single way, we are able to do what Moses was not able to do. Because we've been given him a superior ministry, something that is better than Moses' ministry. And the first thing uh, of this new ministry, why it's better is because it unveils our hearts. Verse 12 to 13. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. He says, we are very bold, not like Moses. In, in, a, in, a, in other words, he's saying we have a ministry that is greater than Moses' ministry. And that's a, that's a bold thing to say. If you read the Old Testament, you know Moses is venerated as one of the forefathers of the faith. And Paul's saying our ministry is superior. It is better. It is more permanent, more glorious. Yes, the Old Covenant was good, but it was limited. That's why Moses used the veil. Paul saying, Moses covered his face so that Israel would not see the fading nature of this old covenant. Not because they were scared of it, but because what happened was that every time after Moses talked to God and his face shone, it started to fade again. The radiance started to disappear over time until he would go and talk to, to God again, and then it would regain some of its glow. kind of reminds me of um, my dog has these little balls uh i forgot what the brand is it glows in the dark sounds like a great idea right because you know you're throwing around for the dog in the dark he can see the glowing ball the only problem i realize is that it only glows if you shine light at it and then it glows for about 10 minutes after 10 minutes without light you can't find that thing that's how i lost his ball some ways, Moses' face reflected the glory of God, but it was temporary. It faded. It needed to come back to God. And so Moses had to do that again and again and again. And so he covered his face. And even worse, this old covenant was unable to change people. It did not have staying permanent power. Verse 14, but their minds, the people's minds were hardened. For to this day, when they, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. The people's hearts were hardened, meaning they rejected God. They turned from the law and the prophets. They turned from him even though they saw 
the glory of God reflected on Moses' face. See, Paul uses this imagery of the veil to show that Israel's heart is still blind to the truth. That even to this day, when they're reading his word, they do not see the truth. And he makes it clear that the only way someone's uh, blindness is removed is through Christ. So you see that in verse 14, because only through Christ is it taken away. It's only through Jesus. And when they turned from him, when they rejected him, the veil remained. And without Jesus, the law is still a ministry of death and condemnation. The condemnation that came from the law, which showed us our brokenness, the death that came with the judgment of the law, the law could not solve these things. It wasn't designed to solve these things. We find that in, in Romans. You see, Israel was right to be afraid of Moses' face. That glory that represented God and, and all that he was and all of his character and his, his, his holiness. They stayed away because they couldn't be in the presence of his reflected glory, much less his actual presence. And so Moses' veil, in a way, allowed them to come near so they could hear the teaching of the law, but it was not good enough. See, the problem still remained. They could not actually come into his presence. And the law was meant to make a point, uh, one that we are very familiar with. If you've read Romans 3, all fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, no, not one. Right? It was designed to point us to the real answer, that we need someone better. We need the new covenant of Jesus. And that's the whole point of the new covenant. That's the, the whole point of, uh, of Paul's uh, argument in verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. <laughs> the only way, the only way to, to solve this problem of coming before the, the holy God is to turn to the Lord, is to turn to Jesus. And that's what the whole book of, of, of Moses, law and the prophets, all the books of old, they're all pointing to him. They all find their fulfillment in Jesus. Because who is worthy? Who's worthy to come before him? Who is worthy to, to enter into the presence of perfection? None of us are. And yet in Jesus, we find that he has made a way for us to come before the fullness of God's glory. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says this, He, being Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the glory of God. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He is God in flesh. Come to us so that we can see him. The very thing that Israel hid from in terror, we have direct access to in Jesus. We don't have to see through a veil. We can see God's glory directly. See, Jesus tears that veil and he, he lets us into the presence of his Father. And so let's, let's pause there and then let me ask this question. Does this veil still cover your heart? Does this veil of blindness cover your heart? You see, it's not just Israel that had a, a veil over their, their hearts. It's all of us. All of us at one point were blind to the truth, whether you grew up in the church or not, whether you have been coming all your life or this is your first time. And for myself, I grew up in the church. I read all these stories. I read through the Old Testament and the New Testament over time. And 
And yet I could not put it together. I didn't understand why it was so important. And I remember a moment where it was as if the lights were finally turned on in the room. It was as if I could see for the first time where Jesus was in every single page of Scripture, that every book in the Bible points to him. It was actually like a veil was lifted, and I could see that the, the all of Scripture pointed to Jesus as the answer to my questions, to my desires, to my needs. You see, if you want to see Jesus, if you want to understand why he is so great, if you want to experience the glory of God, you simply need to ask. That's what it means when it says turn to him. If you turn to him, that's the only way that the veil is lifted. It's just come to Jesus and say, I, I can't figure it out myself, but I, I want to know you. I want to know you, God. Would you show me your glory? And Jesus, Jesus is the answer we've been seeking for. And scripture makes it very clear to the one who seeks him. God will not turn away. In fact, he will gladly show you his glory. John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus speaking, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Come to him. Seek him. Knock. You will find him. God does not turn away anyone who comes to him seeking him, turning to him, asking him for salvation. That is never in his character. And for us believers, we, we must be careful not to remove Jesus from the center of our ministry. Now, this, this is not the point that the, the passage is making, but I, I think it's tied closely to it, and I think it's worth mentioning. But if Jesus is the only way that the veil is removed from our hearts, then we, min, we must not ever remove him from the center and the core of what we preach and teach. Because there's always this temptation to revert back to our old ways, isn't there? The law wasn't just given to Israel. Yes, it was given to them directly, but we function well under the law. We like to live under the law. But the problem is if we remove Jesus, then the law reigns. And what I mean by that is there's a very human tendency for us to seek to, to shape people behaviorally. We want to change how they act. I mean, if you have children, you understand this. Do this, don't do that. If you do this, I punish you. So you don't do that. It makes sense in our heads, but is that not the law? And it comes from a good desire. And this even is, is preached from gospel-believing churches, gospel-believing Christians. We preach Jesus, but functionally we abide under the law. Is that us? And we, we, we can find this easily when, when shame and guilt thrive under our, in, under our, 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 in our midst. When judgment reigns, and we're more willing to, to cast stones than to show grace to people, functionally, it's as if Jesus never existed. You see, when grace and forgiveness are removed, when Jesus is removed, we essentially go back to the old covenant. Condemnation, judgment, we welcome it in once again. That's dangerous. Yes, it is good to want people to behave morally correctly, to, to have people obey God and his rules for us, but to do so at the expense of Christ is foolishness. It brings death back within, back, back in. And so we must not replace the veil that 
God removed in the first place. That that is a a warning that we must be careful not to not to do. Second, the new covenant frees us. Look at verse seventeen. Now the Lord, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. It seems seems like a simple statement. We need to make a clarification here. What what's not being said? All right, the Spirit and the Lord, or Spirit and the Father, or the Spirit and the Son are not the same person. That's heresy. Okay, so. Clearly, that would not be in line with what Paul has been teaching, what the rest of Scripture has been teaching, that that, that would be wrong. But but it is, uh, I think, saying what uh, Paul is saying is that the Spirit of God is at work with Christ. All right, He, he is at work with uh, the other persons of the Trinity. Uh, and, and the Spirit unveils our eyes to see that Christ is the only way to salvation. And Paul's point is simple. Wherever the Spirit of God is at work, there is freedom. But what is this freedom that he's talking about? Is it freedom to sin? Freedom to live, laugh, and love? Probably not. Uh, what is this freedom that he's talking about? All right, the context helps. Uh, freedom here is talking about freedom from the law. Freedom from all the constraints and the enslavement to the law. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, also written by Paul, says this, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. And in this passage, Paul's talking about circumcision, which is under the law. And he's saying, if you abide by this rule to be circumcised, you essentially say, I am obligated to keep all of the law. And he say, you've been freed from that already. You don't need to follow these rules anymore, because if you follow one, you must follow all. But you don't have to. Jesus set us free. He's already lifted that bondage from us. We don't have to follow its demands any longer because Christ has already fulfilled it perfectly. And this is something to celebrate. And often there's a sentiment in the Christian faith that, that it's all about following rules. If you fail to follow it, it's doom and gloom, fire and brimstone. We've probably all sat under uh, preaching where that is the case. Right? God is waiting and watching. He's just waiting for you to mess up. But that's not the gospel. That's not the new covenant of Jesus. If you only have the old covenant with the new, then indeed it is the doom and gloom that we hear about. If you only have fire and brimstone in hell, with no grace, with no salvation in Christ, then certainly that is true. We remain unworthy and unlovable without him. But Paul is saying, Jesus has already dealt with the doom and gloom. He's already taken the punishment that we deserved, and he set us free. He's made us worthy and, and, and lovable. You don't need to achieve anything on your own anymore. You don't need to follow the law. I've done it for you. I've set you free. I've set you free to love God and to love his people. And that's why he sums it up in the New Testament. I sum it all up in two, two rules for you. Love God, love others. Simple as that. That's the freedom that he's brought us. So friends, do, do we understand that we are liberated people? If we are Christians, we are freed people. And, and my question to you is, does, does this freedom actually change how you live? Right? A genuinely freed person lives in light of that liberty. That's why again and again we're told in, in scriptures to rejoice as a command. Not do it if you feel like it. Paul says, rejoice. And again, I say to you, rejoice. We're supposed to be people marked with joy. We understood where we were before and now how far we've come. And we understand that we no longer have 
those shackles on us. Now, this may seem like a very stupid illustration, but this is the closest thing I have to enslavement in my very cushy first world life. The closest thing I can imagine is how I had to go to math class all my life throughout school. I am terrible at math. And I, I remember to this day, the last day of math class I ever had to attend San Francisco State University that night, Thursday night, when I found out I had a C for the semester, which meant, I don't know, for Chinese parents, you're like, oh my gosh, a C? What's wrong with now? Well, for me, it was like, oh, freedom. At last, I will never have to endure this hardship ever again. I walked out of that, that, that school, that classroom, and I remember the, the air tasted sweeter. One of the best days of my life. But it filled me with joy. And that joy carried me throughout the rest of college. I was like, I'd never have to do that again. I understood how miserable it was. And now I experienced liberty. It made me a joyful person. My friend, far greater for us to, to consider, are you a joyful person having realized the slavery you've been set free from? Slavery to sin, the slavery to death and condemnation and judgment. The slavery of the law. Does that joy pervade you in, in, in every part of you? Is it, is it part of who you are? Are you at peace with God and trusting in it, him in all times? This joy is not talking about coming around and, and having this false sense of happiness. But this joy is, is a, a peace that is firmly founded upon the goodness of God, knowing that that is always yours. That your condition before God is always secured. Where those who know you sense this freedom in how you live, how you respond when things aren't going your way. You see, it's easy to tell when we're living as enslaved people because fear and anxiety are the telltale signs. We're always living under fear and anxiety of, of a punishment. It was like the Israelites who were under the law. It was constantly worrying about how, how oh no, am I going to mess up? Am I going to lose my, my condition before God, am I going to become unworthy? But these questions are questions only to be asked if we are actually enslaved. Because under the, the new covenant, under the ministry of the Spirit, under the gospel of Jesus, then we are people of God who are freed forever because his presence is with us. That's all we see here in verse 17. If the spirit of the Lord is in our midst, then freedom reigns in us. Freedom is ours. Freedom from all that came before. And so there is no power for, for, for fear and anxiety. There's no place for it because who we are is firmly secured in Christ. And that means we come before the presence of the Father without guilt or shame. Because Christ has brought us into the presence of the Father. That's why we can always come before him in confidence. Even if we've messed up the night before. Even if we've messed up the moment before. Even if we feel unworthy. Even if we look at ourselves in the mirror and we, we can't get over the fact that as many times as we try, we, we can't seem to defeat our sins. Do you realize if you're a Christian that your holiness and your beauty is Christ's worthiness and Christ's beauty? That your holiness is his and he's given it to you fully, never to be lost, no matter how poorly you may think of yourself. 
or others may think of you. You are freed by him. You don't have to prove it to anyone. You've been loved by him first, and therefore, therefore, it affects how you love others as well. It's a love that can't be stolen from you. It's a love that's yours forever, and, and that means that you can love others in the same way. You are free to do so, to love God, to love others eternally. Finally, the new covenant transforms us. In verse 18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And Paul is speaking to believers here. Uh, we know this because he says, We all, with unveiled face, those who have turned to the Lord and have had the veil removed from their eyes. And so that's Christians. And he's saying, We are beholding the glory of God. Unlike Israel, we come before God and we see his glory. We don't have to run from it. And, and the crazy thing is as we behold his glory, as we spend time with God, he's saying it transforms us. It transforms us into the same image. We are becoming like God. We are becoming holy like him. And that's the very human nature, that, that, that's a human nature uh, tendency to, uh, that's our tendency as we as we respond to glory, right? Humans become what we admire. That, that's who we are. What we admire, what we see and, and, and love, we, we seek to become like. I, I remember as a kid watching the 49ers, uh, watching Steve Young, uh, and for those young people in here, that's basically the slightly less good-looking but definitely better uh, Jimmy Garoppolo, uh, leading the 49ers to glory again and again and again. And, you know, watching, I was like, man, I want to become like him. And so every time we watched them play, I would watch the TV, watch his mechanics, and just copy him and just throw like him again and again. It would annoy the heck out of my parents who were just like, get out of the way in the TV. And it's like, oh, I'm trying to learn. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I wanted to understand him. I wanted to become like him. I wanted to throw as far as him, run as fast as him. That, that's our human nature. What we see and admire, we seek to imitate and become like. And for Paul, he's saying, as we gaze upon Jesus, the glory of God, the more we look at him, the more we become like him. We can't help it. We're transformed into his likeness. It's this idea of, of a progressive transformation uh, as we become like him bit by bit, little by little. He's not saying we are a completed work immediately. Right? Sometimes as, as uh, we become Christians, we think, like, why am I still sinning? Why do I still struggle? That's because it's a progressive work. You don't become perfect the moment that, that you become a Christian, but, but you are slowly but surely becoming like our God, one degree of glory to another. This is the work of the Spirit in us. Uh, another word for it is sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, less like sin. Sanctification. This is what sets the new covenant apart from the old covenant. Yes, the old was good, but it could not change people's hearts. It couldn't produce real transformation within. People could not gaze upon the glory of God and instead they had their hearts hardened. They repeatedly disobeyed God. And so even if they behaviorally changed, their hearts did not. And therefore, they failed. 
But this ministry, this ministry of the Spirit is better, more effective than Moses' ministry because it's in Jesus and Jesus, in Jesus only are we transformed from the inside out. And we have full access to this, this glory of God. And so, my friends, as we finish here, I, I need to ask, how are you being transformed? How are you being transformed by the glory of God? Because for us as, as Christians, we have to understand that transformation is not an option of faith, but it's the very natural progression of faith. And if you're, you find that for yourself, you're, you're not being transformed into his image right now, I must ask, who are you gazing at? Whose glory are you beholding? if not Jesus. And an easy way to tell us who are you becoming like? Your convictions, your character. They mold themselves after the one that you admire and the one that you glorify. Is it someone on TV? Is it a politician? Is it a, a, a superstar? Is it your coworkers, your parents, whoever it may be? If it's not Jesus, who is it? See, for us Christians, we are to look to him regularly, to admire him, to adore him. And that is to come to him and gaze upon his glory. And to find ourselves being transformed from one degree of glory to another. That, that's what happens when we fall in love with someone. We become like them. Friends, you will find that as you behold Jesus and his glory, your affections will transform. Your heart will learn to love what he loves. Your heart to, will learn to hate what he hates. And it may not be a steady transformation. At times you may feel yourself even backsliding or struggling. But the amazing promise of Jesus is that we can be sure that the one who began that good work of transformation in you will bring it to completion one day. And do you believe that to be true? That you, where you are today, however you may be feeling, that one day you will look just like the sun in his beautiful splendor. In his fullness of, of God's glory, you will get to be sanctified, justified, perfect to behold in, in God's eyes. That, that is incredible. Why don't you pray for us? Father, we come to you as imperfect people. Most of us, if they're all of us struggling, and at times looking in all the wrong places, forgetting how sweet it is to be yours, looking at lesser glories, and being led astray all too, all too often. God, we do not deserve to be in your presence. We are like the Israelites. And yet it is your grace and your mercy that gives us hope. I pray for our, our church here. I pray for our brothers and sisters here. We, we ask for your help. God, would you draw us near to yourself? Would you come to us in your kindness and mercy and would you show us how beautiful your son is? Will we gaze upon his beauty and find ourselves 
unable to look away. In fact, would we find our hearts growing in love for you? Would you transform us, God? Would you free us from bondage of sin? God, would we enjoy you? We lift your name high and we thank you for being such a good God to us. Praise in your son's name.